coming up, good news. We've read the manifestos, so you don't have to. A manifesto to see us through Brexit and beyond. I want you to have your choice over your future. Opinion is changing and it's moving towards Labour. Paul Osborne here. Thank you, as ever, for downloading the latest podcast. This week's unlikely location for talking through the UK general election campaign is Melbourne. Now, why am I in Melbourne, I hear you mumble? Well, firstly, because it's a very nice place. If you haven't been to Melbourne, you really should. It's lovely. But chiefly, I'm in Melbourne because Theresa May is completely unreliable. But anyway, just because the Prime Minister repeatedly promised not to call the general election that we are currently all enduring, that doesn't mean that future promises should be dismissed as meaningless waffle dreamt up for no other reason than to steal your vote. Good Lord, no. That's what strong and stable government and leadership is about. It's making sure we're honest with the public about the hard choices. Now, look, hands up. Who has ever read a manifesto? One of you must have done, surely. It can't just be me. Manifestos are actually really handy if you ever find yourself struck by sudden insomnia. And thanks to today's modern internet, you don't even have to be judged by people in WH Smith to get hold of one. This week, we have had the formal publication of the Conservative Party's plans for the next five years and the wish lists of parties who basically have absolutely no chance of winning. So why don't we start with the Tories? A portrait of the kind of country I want this nation to be after Brexit, as we chart our own way in the world. For at this defining moment for the United Kingdom, as we embark on this momentous journey for our nation, We have a chance to step back and ask ourselves what kind of country we want to build together. Well, let's dial up the long-distance tin can with string and catch up with Robert Meakin. Robert, this is very obviously the manifesto of a party that is pretty confident of winning, pretty confident of winning very well, and taking advantage of that to force through all manner of things that normally it wouldn't dare do with the sort of tiny majority that the Conservatives had after the last general election, like, for example, robbing free lunches off infant school pupils. It is also, with respect, a little bit rich for a party that's been in power for seven years to suddenly turn around and say, good God, there's some sort of social care funding crisis, and then try to seek the credit for solving it. A lot more more homes are going to end up being sold, albeit eventually to fund that social care. That's not terribly helpful if you don't own your own home, like, for example, the entire coming generation who've been priced out of the housing market. Yeah, on the first point of the how confident the, the Conservative Party presently are, I mean, just look where the manifesto launch was. It's in Halifax, a seat that the Tories haven't held for decades. It's a seat they've been closing in on, though, in recent uh, in recent times. In terms of the uh, social care and the housing policy, we know that this, there's this age-old problem now of the fact we have a younger generation that simply cannot afford to get on the housing ladder and an older generation that have been property owners for decades. 
it does smack of something of a fudge now when you talk about people's houses being used as long-term assets for their own social elderly care. It doesn't seem a convincing argument. Again, it just seems a fudge when it comes to dealing with a problem that I think is going to really become a massive issue uh, for governments over the next uh, you know two decades when I think, you know, as I say, when the baby boom generation are of a very elderly age, there's, they're going to be in very, very big number. And at the end of the day, there's still votes in it. They are willing to bring in things that will specifically harm the older voters who are absolutely their base. More of those older voters will have to surrender at least part of the value of their home to fund care towards the end of their lives. The triple lock on pensions is going to be scrapped. Now, again, pensions have risen far above average earnings in recent years. It is arguably fair to do that. But in any normal election, it would be political suicide to do that. And while tearing into the Labour Party for planning secretive tax rises, it is pretty clear that the tax take is going to go up under the Tories. It is. And they're allowed to get away with this because there's been so much scrutiny and, of course, ridicule in terms of Labour's economic plans. The Tories seem to uh, seem to be getting away with all manner of things at the minute, all manner of U-turns. And as you say, it's a state, it's, it symbolises the confidence of Theresa May presently that she thinks and probably knows that she can get away with it. Now, the manifesto again has that entirely undeliverable pledge to reduce net migration to the tens of thousands. This pledge is always there, it never happens, and it becomes an embarrassing broken promise. There's an editorial in the Evening Standard this week which criticised it and said that not a single senior cabinet minister supports it. Now, when you consider who the Standard's editor is, my assumption is that his sources for that claim are reasonably good. Yes, uh, it's fair to say that George Osborne, our former Chancellor, is enjoying himself in his new role as Evening Standard uh, editor. He's wasted no time sort of twisting the knife in to Theresa May, of course. The, the pair famously were never particularly close when they were in the cabinet. In terms of immigration figures, again, it's it's one of these tired election traditions that you have, uh, you know, a, a ruling government or the opposition, you know, saying how they're going to tackle immigration. No one ever really believes it. At the same time, they have to say something. Theresa May has to say that she is going to bring the numbers down. Of course she does. I mean, she, she can't just leave that as an empty page. But when it, whenever they introduce a, a new policy on how they're going to tackle immigration over the next five to ten years, I, I, it, it's, now, it's now met uh, with understandable cynicism. In a campaign which, you know, has been starved of any genuine moments of drama, we must thank God for Cathy Mern, who was the woman who berated Theresa May this week in Oxfordshire over cuts to benefits. She reminds me slightly of Sharon Storer, who had a similar go at Tony Blair on the fabled day in 2001 when John Prescott managed to punch a voter. It does highlight, though, once again, just how stilted and awkward Theresa May is around voters who have not been pre-screened and approved. And she's now moving into that phase of the campaign where she's going to come up against voters, at least in television studios, asking her questions, putting her under pressure, not approved by central office. She might find that quite hard. Oh, I don't doubt that it's going to be pretty rough for Theresa May on that front. She's not a natural performer. She's socially awkward, really, quite shy, uh, certainly not a great um, public speaker and not great around the general public. <laughs> so you consider, consider all those things to be, to be weaknesses. 
I think that the, the belief probably at Tory HQ is that they can ride through this. It, it, it could get embarrassing at times. It could get a bit messy. But I still think they, 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 they regard her as a safe bet in terms of the way the public perceive her as the safe pair of hands, the strong, stable leadership, which we keep hearing about. I think they think they've got enough to get over the line with that, even though I think she will be in for a rough few weeks. I think she'll struggle at times when harangued by the general public during you know, television debates. I think when she goes out the street, as you say, there's always that terrible risk of, of being mugged by an angry member of the public. I don't think any politician, to be fair, can really handle that all that well. So I think it's, it's, it's the tricky part of the election she has to get through. Actually, Oxfordshire is kind of an odd place to find Theresa May at the moment, as mostly she's been in the North and the Midlands and occasionally in Scotland too, chasing down Labour and SNP seats to snatch away next month. It does seem to be working. One analysis of polling this week suggested the Tories are roaring ahead in the Midlands. And while Labour still has a lot of strength in the North of England, the Tories have picked up a lot of support coming from a long way behind, which means that either at just behind Labour or level pegging with Labour, they are going to pick up tens of seats in the north of England. Now, of course, the problem with manifesto launches is all of the show business and razzmatazz that goes with them. That's fine if you can pull it off. But let's be honest, our current crop of party leaders are not exactly showbiz. And when you have to deliver lines like this, it's no wonder the launch can be a bit of a struggle. I am delighted to introduce the leader of the Labour Party and our next Prime Minister, Jeremy Corbyn. Now, of course, the crowd of passionate Labour supporters in Bradford are very happy with that kind of introduction, however much it may fly in the face of sense, evidence or logic. And Mr Corbyn sees the slow rise in Labour's opinion poll rating as evidence of an uprising. This uh, manifesto is a draft for a better future for our country. It's a blueprint of what Britain could be and a pledge of the difference a Labour government can and will make. As the days turn into weeks, as this campaign's continued, opinion is changing and it's moving towards Labour. And actually, there is no secret as to the reason for that. Because people want a country run for the benefit of the many, not the few. Robert, the one problem with all of that is that within a few hours, one of Mr Corbyn's biggest allies, Len McCluskey, safely reinstalled at Unite, was busy telling anyone who'd listen that Labour had absolutely no chance of winning. Indeed, he's obviously far more focused on what happens on the 9th of June than the 8th, specifically how to keep Mr Corbyn in his job by carefully managing everybody's expectations. He has said that winning 200 seats would be a successful result for Labour, which is another new and previous the unknown definition of successful. It will be 30 seats fewer than last time, which we were led to believe was a disaster. It will be the lowest number of seats Labour has managed since the Second World War. And yet apparently that is now the benchmark for success that would allow Mr Corbyn to remain in his job. I think we have to remember that the uh, the current 
Labour hierarchy is considered as a, is, is still a new project. And I do think McCluskey's comments almost represent that, the idea that it, it is this new left-wing project. It is essentially this new party that has emerged, certainly it's a new power base that has emerged. And so he's almost saying, like, yeah, if we do take a bit of a kicking this time round, but are still walking, then we've got a base to move on. It is a way, obviously, of the likes of McCluskey also shoring up their own um, their own power base and saying, look, there's not a cat in hell's chance that we're ready to go back to the days of Blair, Brown, Miliband if we, if we lose on uh, June the 8th. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it, while it may have looked like pessimistic stuff on one level, it was pragmatic politics on another. Now, of course, there's nothing new in this because the Labour manifesto was leaked last week. But this is the document that its hardcore supporters have been praying for for decades. It's packed full of left-wing policies that are often surprisingly popular with many voters until you get to the bit about how you're going to pay for all these improved public services. By Labour's own admission, it would take an extra £50 billion a year in tax. One body claimed this week the party's planning the biggest tax take in decades. If there is one thing we know about voters, they may love the idea of perfect public services always there whenever they need them, but they do not like the idea of having to actually pay for them. And even though the party has said that it won't put up taxes for 95% of earners, that is enough for the Tories to spook voters about tax hikes, and they will do that relentlessly. Of course, I mean, we, we've seen this many, many times over the years with, you know, with far more moderate uh, Labour manifestos. At the end of the day, Jeremy Corbyn is doing everything that's on the tin. You know, you have to say, you know, whether you're a supporter or critic of Jeremy Corbyn, the, the manifesto, I think, is a is a very honest one. You know, it, it's very clear. It's Jeremy Corbyn's vision of how Britain should be, how it should progress over these next few years. And that does involve, of course, it inevitably has to involve a lot more spending, and therefore a lot more taxing. It is full of things that conventional politicians believe are absolutely unachievable. But he seems to me, at least, to be banking on the idea that the same people who in the referendum last year had had enough of experts are now ready to dismiss all these warnings about his plans and give them a go. It's a pitch to those Labour voters who backed Brexit last year to keep challenging the establishment. Now, the problem is, I suspect there are a lot of people out there who like some of these policies, like nationalising the railways or taking the Royal Mail back into public ownership. They like those ideas, but they do not like the idea of Jeremy Corbyn being the man trying to deliver them. That would seem to be the crux of the problem for Labour, yes, presently. Um, I think, as, as I said, I think that it, it comes across as a very bold, radical manifesto. I think Jeremy Corbyn actually so far has looked you know, very at ease on the campaign trail. Let's be honest, he's in his element. The reason he's in his element is because he's surrounded by his own supporters and he's out on the stump. That's where he likes to be. He doesn't enjoy being at the dispatch box in the House of Commons. Corbyn going up and down the country, meeting you know, on, the, on the whole his own supporters. He's, uh, he's, he's very much in his comfort zone. Uh, people are already saying he's having a reasonably you know, good campaign on an individual level. Although I'd have to say people did say in 2015 that Ed Miliband 
was having a, a rather good campaign. And we all know how that turned out. Well, meanwhile, freed of the burden of any potential involvement in government, the Liberal Democrats are again able to fill their manifesto with whatever flight of fancy occurs to them, safe in the knowledge that implementing it will never, ever be an issue for them. And as you would expect, at the heart of Tim Farron's plans is a pledge to hold a second Brexit referendum with the prospect of staying in the European Union. There was definitely nothing on that ballot paper that said we would turn our friends, our neighbours, our allies into enemies. And yet here we are. In June last year, we voted for a departure, but we did not vote for a destination. So I want you to have your choice over your future. Robert, I think that's about as fired up as Tim Farron is capable of getting. Uh, the Liberal Democrats went into this election wanting to be the voice of the 48%. I mean, they're actually the voice of about 8%, which is what the poll rating has been stuck at all the way through this campaign. And with every passing week, it looks more and more likely there is not going to be a Lib Dem revival. They are going to be lucky to pick up really more than a couple of extra seats and if they're really lucky hang on to the ones they've got that does seem to be the likely scenario presently on one level i think the liberal democrats are talking about corbyn being in his comfort zone i think the liberal democrats have also been very much in their comfort zone they like being the underdogs at election time they like being the sort of the sub opposition so to speak and you get the sense that the party themselves are far more at ease uh, with themselves in this current position. Farron himself, you know, he's, 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 a, he's obviously an amiable, honest sort of bloke. I would say he's, he's having a solid enough campaign. Does he really convince people that he's a big player in waiting? I would say not. I mean, right from the beginning, I've always thought that um, Tim Farron, as decent as a bloke he is, he's never going to be able to convince the British people that he has the kind of authority or gravitas, really, to make a big influence and a big mark on the, on the British political map. Now, elsewhere, there's been an awful lot of talk in the last week about what's going to happen inside the Labour Party after the obvious and inevitable defeat. Some talk that a rump of anything up to 100 Labour MPs could just split and form a new party if Jeremy Corbyn stays on as leader. Also reports that Tony Blair has been feverishly chatting to Nick Clegg. And then there was Vince Cable saying it's a bit too soon to be talking about a new party. I wonder if a new party is the plan at all, because the alternative would be a sort of a reverse takeover of the Liberal Democrats. Those Labour MPs cross over to the Lib Dems and then just swamp them. I don't think there's any real plan at the moment. I still think, certainly on the Labour Party front, there's a lot of MPs who are just a little lost and remain in political exile. I, I really, I, I, of course, there'll be chatter. Of course, there'll be suggestions of what could happen next. But you know, at the end of the day, the plan was to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn uh, last year. They didn't manage that. And they're terrified. I mean, if, if, uh, if they left the Labour brand, so to speak, for want of a better phrase, and that would be hugely risky for them. History suggests it could be utterly disastrous. Now, last week, we had a little rant about the gibberish which is habitually shared online during election campaigns. And indeed, since then, I may have, perhaps unwisely, waded into a handful of online debates, polluting the cloudy puddles of nonsense with the occasional fact. But one statistic I saw a lot this week was about the huge chunk of the population who just don't bother to vote. 
So, a public service announcement. We are bumping up on the voter registration deadline. It is the 22nd of May. If you haven't registered, then I urge you to do so. Head to gov.uk and search for the electoral registration page. Robert, one interesting thing about Australia is voting here is compulsory. If you don't vote, you get fined for it. Now, they vote on a Saturday, not a Thursday, which is easier for lots of people. And what's more, when you go to vote, you are almost guaranteed to get a sausage sandwich on the way out of the polling station. I mean, this really is the lucky country. But a lot of people that I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks are genuinely amazed when you tell them that one in three voters in the UK don't even bother to vote when they're electing a national government. It's a very sorry state of affairs. Look, you appreciate no one, not everyone's going to be as interested in politics as as we are. And, you know, it's a minority of people who follow it feverishly day in, day out. But at the same time, I think it's it's pretty scandalous uh, that that that, uh, figure still exists. And I do wonder if there's a way, if there's a better way of essentially forcing people to vote. I mean... (sighs) Without sounding too old-fashioned about it, yeah, we there was a generation who you know put their lives on the line in World War Two to defend us being a democratic country, and now the fact that people can't be asked to vote on June the eighth just seems a very sorry and frankly unjustifiable state of affairs. Now, this is normally the bit where I say that we have no time to talk about Donald Trump, and then I just say something vaguely insulting about him. I've had a little more cause to think about him this week, in particular a moment a few days ago in Melbourne when I walked past an apartment building called the Watergate, at the bottom of which was the Nixon Hotel. Well, this week, President Numskull sent his national security adviser out to deny handing secrets to the Russians while they were, you know, just visiting in the Oval Office, as senior Russians would do. And then a few hours later, Trump tweeted that he had the absolute right to hand secrets to anybody he wanted to, thus, of course, undermining those earlier denials from a few hours before. Then we learned a little more about why Trump suddenly fired the FBI chief who, you know, was investigating him. Turns out James Comey wanted a bit more money for the Russia probe. And it also turns out that Trump wanted him to drop the investigation into yet another of his now former officials who has, let's call them questionable, links to Russia. Oh, and then Trump sort of hinted that he may have been routinely secretly tape recording people in the White House, which, you know, is exactly what what Nixon did. And hey, look what's happened in Washington. I rise today, Mr. Speaker, to call for the impeachment of the President of the United States of America. All right, it's probably a little early to be talking about that. But as you might imagine, Donald Trump reacted to being found out as a colossally corrupt imbecile by whining about it like a toddler. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. In the light of all this, Theresa May was asked this week if she still had confidence in Donald Trump. And her reply, 
again was that it's a matter for Trump if he wants to start shouting state secrets into a bullhorn from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And I know she is boxed into a corner here. She can hardly say in a news conference, well, like the rest of you, obviously I'm terrified that this blundering halfwit is going to accidentally end up killing all of us. But should she really be quite so docile in response to somebody who in all likelihood is going to end up at the very least impeached, quite possibly imprisoned? I'd have to say I understand her stance on this, and I would imagine that she, like a lot of people, is is, is quietly hoping that the, the American political stroke legal system starts to slowly wrap itself around Trump's throat. And this is the beginning of the end. Obviously, it's too early to say at this stage, but uh, I don't think you can expect a British prime minister to be taking any sort of firm line at a time when this story is moving like wildfire, it seems, by the hour. I've always thought there's a chance... In the end, that the uh, the American political system almost is is a very complicated beast. It's been pretty badly wounded by the by the the enigma and power of Donald Trump, you know, coming and kicking down all the doors. But I think, like like all all sort of strong animals, it sort of almost sort of recovers slowly, builds up, and then comes back to get him. And I think as time goes on, that's what we that's what we're seeing right now. I think that's what we see. We are seeing the American political system regaining its strength and starting to bite back. And it's absolutely fascinating to watch from this side of the Atlantic. So there we are. The general election lumbers on to its inevitable and obvious conclusion. And Donald Trump continues to edge us ever closer to the abyss of apocalypse. And that's all we have time for this week. Assuming we're still around in a week's time, by the time we meet again, I'll be back in that London, my Australian odyssey, a fading memory with only a handful of credit card bills to remind me. Thanks again, Theresa May, for lying your socks off. Do get in touch on Twitter, at Paul Osborne. But until next time, thanks to Robert, thanks to you for listening. And for now, goodbye. Yeah.